Welcome to the J.D. Power Travel Podcast. I'm Michael Vermillion with J.D. Power, and with me today are Mike Taylor, who leads our travel practice, and Jenny Corwin, our lead analyst for travel. Mike and Jenny, welcome. Hi. Hello. Mike, let's kick it off this week with the airlines. So it looks like Delta Airlines is testing free Wi-Fi on their domestic flights. Uh, do we expect that to stick? Uh, why is Delta testing free Wi-Fi? And do we, will we expect the other uh, airlines to follow? Well, this is a trend that started on the airport itself. If you remember your travel experiences from a few years ago, uh, airports were regularly charged for Wi-Fi access. And now it's very rare to find one that actually does charge. They do monetize it a little bit by putting ads uh, into the authentication system. But this is a trend that's going to roll from the airport into the airline itself. And the key issue here is that, you know, while it was while you were paying for it in flight, that really retarded the number of people who actually used the actual streaming system on the aircraft uh, to about 10 or 11 or 12 percent. So now that it's free, it, you know, that number may go to 80 or 90. And can the actual aircraft streaming service, uh, streaming um, hardware, actually handle that? And that's what, that's what they're testing. And the latest versions of the Panasonic systems, which I believe are going to be the tipping point for free Wi-Fi, are what's being tested by Delta. And it's got um, several multiples of the normal bandwidth that you'd find on an aircraft. And this is certainly part of the thing that we see in the data is that if you have a great Wi-Fi system where people can occupy themselves with their own screens, watching their own streaming videos, Netflix or Hulu or whatever it might be, they enjoy the flight so much more and they give you higher ratings because you're being entertained in what otherwise is a tedious experience of sitting on an aircraft facing in one direction for a few hours. Okay, thanks, Mike. Uh, on the hospitality side, Jenny, uh, it looks like Marriott is launching a home sharing platform. So w w what's behind this? What, what, why is Marriott launching, uh, getting into home sharing? Uh, is this something to do with their loyalty program? And can we expect uh, other brands uh, to follow them into the, uh, the home sharing uh, platform business? Absolutely. Yeah, I think Marriott really thinks that they um, have a platform here that can compete with Airbnb. And it is it is definitely part of the loyalty program, and that's the draw, right? Marriott has a large established loyalty program with the Bonvoy program, and so they have these loyal guests that may have needs outside of traditional homes, uh, particularly in this case, think multi-generational trips, something where you would want a lot of rooms for a lot of people. This is filling a gap in their portfolio for someone who doesn't want to book three to four hotel rooms for a single trip. Um, they're not really the first brand to get into this. Um, Hyatt did it before with One Fine Stay, which actually is now owned by Accor. Um, but they're doing it a little bit differently. They're partnering with um, property management companies. So it's not really like Airbnb, not people hosting their own homes on the Marriott platform. Um, so they're, they're partnering with property management companies. But the, and the, from what I understand, the inventory is not exclusive. So that means these homes could be posted on other sites in other ways. But if you are to book them through the Marriott website, you're able to earn and redeem loyalty points for that. So I, I think if this is a successful venture, I would not be surprised if we see a lot of other brands picking up on this strategy. Um, some brands have publicly stated that they don't feel that uh, the Airbnb or the home sharing guest is really the same as their guest, so there's not a need to fill that gap. 
Um, but I, I think we'll definitely see what happens here. Okay, thanks, Jenny. Uh, Mike, turning back to airports, uh, there was a recent study, I guess, released uh, looking at where you would find the most germs in an airport, and surprisingly, it's not in the in the restroom. It's actually at the security checkpoint in those plastic bins that you use as security. So it turns out there's a company that is introducing a new product uh, called antibacterial checkpoint trays to address this uh, problem. So I, I think they just raises a larger uh, question around um, what are the airports and what are, what are the TSA doing to make the uh, the security experience uh, better for for airport uh, uh, travelers and passengers. Well, after post 9/11, which threw everything into a tailspin, especially TSA, they've been playing nothing for catch but catch up, and this is of course many uh, over a decade later now. So the original uh, goal of the TSA was just to get the function done, you know, get the check done so that it can be done in an efficient manner and try to reduce the number, the amount of time that people are waiting in line. And now that they've made a decent improvement uh, in that system, it's become much more standardized, if you've noticed, from airport to airport. Um, they're turning their attention to the smaller items about how to manage the flow of the line and then what might be happening to the passenger while they're waiting or while they're uh, in that experience itself. And so this antibacterial tray is just one of those um, you know, uh, precursors of uh, a TSA that's now turning its focus to the actual experience rather than looking at the process. And we see that in our data as well that it, uh, the TSA has kind of leveled off now and become less of a problem with the one exception of, you know, peak times where everybody has to wait. Um, but it's just a good indication that they're starting to turn their attention to the customer or the passenger themselves rather than, you know, how they're going to process all these people through the, through the line. Okay, thanks, Mike. Uh, turning to rental cars, uh, there was a news item this week about a new car facility opening at the Kahului Airport in Maui, so something like $340 million investment. And uh, just traveling across the country recently, I've noticed other uh, infrastructure investment happening at the uh, the car facilities. So, for example, the Phoenix Airport, they're now extending the, the train out to the rental car facility. Uh, we know that there's going to be a new rental car facility built as part of, part of the uh, LAX uh, upgrade. So, Mike, I think the question is, uh, how important are these rental car facilities to the airports? Uh, what's the implication for, uh, for for passengers and travelers? And is this something we can expect uh, in terms of a trend to, to continue? Well, believe it or not, the increased usage or increased presence of Conracs or consolidated rental car facilities has really little to do with actually renting the car. It's more about access, restricting access to the airport campus and freeing up nearby parking lots uh, or nearby lots, lots that become parking lots that produce revenue for the airport itself. So the Con Conrack is just kind of an excuse to do two things: uh, improve access, uh, which is one of the which is the second largest factor uh, in our airport study as far as satisfaction goes, and then uh, allow the airport to get revenues from parking. And in some cases, that's the major source of revenue for the airport, even more than the actual air travel. Uh, costs and fees that they charge the airlines and to the passengers. So the Conrad, Conrad Consolidated Facility, what's great about this Hawaii 
uh, facility is that it takes advantage of another item that we see or another trend that we see in our data, which is making it an experience and having it be reflective of the environment in which the airport finds itself or the geography. In this case, Hawaii. So they have water features and, uh, you know, they have a, a kind of an antique train and um, they have people in costume that you would, f you would find only in Hawaii. You wouldn't find that in, say, Dallas, Texas. You might find cowboy hats in Dallas, Texas, and you do, by the way, at the consolidated rental car facility. So there's a couple things going on here, but the big driver of this is, again, the, the amount of people trying to access the airport has grown so large and so massive over the last five to six years that this is just a way to take all those buses off of the property and consolidate them into one or two buses that are going constantly looping through the property and taking people to that rental car facility. Okay, Mike, thank you for that. So, Jenny, just to finish up with digital, uh, news this week that uh, Google is launching a new travel site. Uh, they're going to bring together flights and hotel search into uh, one site, and apparently this site is supposed to replace the Trips app. So, so what's happening here? Why is Google uh, pursuing this strategy, and, and is this uh, surprising uh, to you? Uh, is this something that we can expect the other um, competitors to Google Travel to uh, to follow in terms of an approach? Well, I, I think package bookings have always been important. And I know Google has had a long time, the, the flights app or their flights functionality has been around for a long time. They used to have a hotel's functionality. They let it go by the wayside. They've recently brought it back, and now they're combining it into this trips. And, and it does have the option to book packages, but it's just flights and hotels right now. Um, but the other thing they have on here is, is this Explorer feature, which really is more destination-focused, which is a little bit different than things you're seeing on other um, booking engines, particularly the OTAs and, and things like that. Um, but right now, the site's serving mostly as an aggregator. I haven't seen the ability to actually make any direct booking. So, it's hard to say who their real competitors are, except for other aggregators that are doing the same thing. Um, I, I think what this means for the industry, though, and I think it's going to play much more heavily on the hotel side than the airline side, is the importance of their, their search engine optimization process and product that they have going on. Um, because I think there are a lot of people who are legacy Google Flights users that are going to find themselves on this Google Trips and have the option to start looking at hotels, too. And so you you need to make sure your search engine is your you've got your SEOs in place, right? That you're going to pop up as one of the hotels that is recommended um, in this Google uh, this new Google Trips. And, and as of right now, like I said, since there's no booking option, they're still going to probably go to the site to book because what it'll give you is a list of places to book, which include OTAs and the site, provided that your brand.com site is has the lowest option, lowest price option for that hotel once the once the user's chosen a hotel. Um, it could lead to far more direct bookings if you're doing it right. So I, I think this there's there's a lot of upside right now. Um, if they end up going with their own booking engine, then it's going to be a much more dif a much different story, I think, for uh, hoteliers as well as the airlines. Okay, thanks, Jenny. We'll have to wait and see. Mike and Jenny, thanks for joining us today. You're quite welcome. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for joining as well. To learn more about the J.D. Power travel practice, please visit us on the web at jdpower.com business, and we'll see you next time.